The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, slowly but surely. I'm not sure how many weeks we've been in 1 Corinthians, but it's been a long time. And if you've been keeping track of kind of where we've been heading, we're heading now into 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16, and we're going to talk about the topic of head coverings. But before we do that, I just want to make note of last week's message. Last week, we talked about bringing glory to God in all things. And the way in which we bring glory to God, that we bring glory to, by, to God by doing nothing to hinder the gospel. And that we bring glory to God by doing everything to further the gospel. So, in other words, Paul said, don't stand in the way of the gospel, but instead promote the gospel. And it's important that we keep that in mind as we move forward both today and over the next several weeks in our text. This idea of doing nothing to hinder the gospel and doing everything to further the gospel. So without further ado, let's look at our text. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to, have, to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So, I'm going to start by saying, this is a difficult passage. And I, I started actually thinking I was going to preach through verses 2 through 16 today. And uh, it's, instead, we're not. It's going to be, if you notice in your bulletin, there's five points. Today we're going to cover point one, and then we're going to cover the other points next week. Because we really need to get point one down before we can understand all of the rest of it. So it's a difficult passage. Some passages are difficult due to the complexity of the text, maybe the wording or the grammatical structure or what have you. 
And other passages are difficult because they're hard to stomach. They attack our pride and they call us to submit to His will and not our own. They call us to make changes in our lives. And this passage is difficult because it is both. It has both elements in there. And every week I pray that we would be both not just hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. So the question that is appropriate to ask ourselves as we come to God's Word this morning is, am I willing to do what this passage says? Am I willing to be obedient to the Lord even when it is humbling or it's difficult or it runs contrary to the grain of what our culture has taught us? And I pray, I pray that as we ask that question, the answer is yes. Knowing that that's not always easy to do. But I also pray that we actually ask that every week. That every week we say, am I willing to do what this says? That we don't just show up to gain more knowledge, to puff ourselves up with knowledge, but instead to seek to apply it and live in light of it day by day. So as we consider our text this morning, I want you to notice that in chapters 12, 13, and 14, the chapters that lie ahead, Paul's focus shifts to that of corporate or gathered worship. In other words, he's addressing some specific concerns regarding the way they conduct themselves when they come together. If you remember in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's laid this foundation for the gospel. He's spoken to some specific issues within the church. And it seems that now he's beginning to talk about their worship time together, their Sunday morning worship service, if you will. And over the course of the next several weeks, we'll see that Paul deals not only with the issue of head coverings, but also the Lord's Supper, a.k.a. communion, and the use of spiritual gifts, all within the worship service. So we have this idea of head coverings, the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts being used in the worship service. Now, in fairness, some would say that he is not talking about corporate worship, per se, as of yet. That that, that, that actually happens later on. But instead, that this discussion of head coverings per, applies to every context, not just the context of uh, the worship service, not just gathered worship. And those who make this argument would say that his focus on corporate worship actually begins in verse 17, so at the end of this section. However, I think that the flow of the text indicates otherwise, and I'm going to try to make that argument as clear as I can. So there's a clear break between verses 11.1 and 11.2. And I want to remind you that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions within our Bibles are not inspired. That as Paul wrote, he didn't say, chapter 11, verse 1, right? Instead, he wrote a letter, and for later, for reference, we added these chapter divisions and these verse numbers for the sake of reference. So when I say, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, you know where to turn. Instead of me saying, Turn with me in your Bibles to when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, now I praise you because you remember me and everything. And you'd be like, okay, how do I do that? Right? So we have these divisions and they're helpful, but they're not inspired. And I think actually the division between 10 uh, verse 33 and 11.1 is a poor division. I think it's one of the poorer divisions in Scripture. We're not going to change it because then everybody would be thoroughly confused once again. Verse, the point is, 
11.1 goes with the text that precedes it. That's why last week I preached on 10.31 through 11.1. And then he starts a new idea or a new thought in verse 11.2. Clear as mud? All right. So there's also this connection between verse 2 and what follows in the chapters ahead. So there's a break between 11.1 and 11.2, and then there's a connection between 11.2 and what follows in the verses and chapters ahead. Remember, 1 Corinthians was written in response to a letter that Paul received from them. So Paul, he went to Corinth. The church was founded in Corinth. He served as their pastor there for 18 months uh, within the church, not like Paul. Paul's typical... Uh, stay was not that long, but for some reason he stayed in Corinth for an extended period of time. He shepherded the church, and then the church has written a letter to him, and they've asked him some questions. We know this because in 1 Corinthians 7.1, Paul writes, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So he's addressing some specific things that they wrote to him about. So I would argue it's likely that in these chapters, Paul is responding to some information he received in that letter. And even if that's not the case, we know that Paul is clearly understanding or is clearly familiar with what's going on in Corinth. He's addressing some very specific concerns. Head coverings this week and next week, and then communion, and then use of spiritual gifts. He knows, he has intimate knowledge of what's going on. He's not just saying, you know, I have a feeling that this might be an issue for you. Instead, he's saying, I understand that this is something that needs to be addressed here in your specific context. So the question is, how does verse 2 connect with chapters 12, 13, and 14? Well, look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The word traditions refers to teaching. And it's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. The very same word where we read, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions which, we were, which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So I think what Paul is saying is this in verse 2. I think he's saying, I praise you for holding fast to my teachings. I praise you for holding fast to the things I have taught you to do when you gather. I praise you for holding fast to these very traditions, these things that you do. So uh, a pastor begins, uh, helps plant Harmony Bible Church, and he might write a letter later on saying, I praise you for holding fast to the things that we established the traditions that you had there, that we established these things, and I praise you that you're holding fast to them when you gather. I praise you, Paul says, or is implying that when you assemble, I praise you that when you assemble, you're concerned about head coverings and celebrating the Lord's Supper and using spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts that God has given you. And by the way, I believe he's saying so genuinely. I praise you for this. He's not using flattery. And it's interesting, as I was working through the text this week, some commentators actually said, Paul is kind of setting them up. He's, giving, he's using words to build them up before he hammers them with the truth. And I don't really know as though I'm going to buy into that. I think Paul is genuine and sincere in saying, I praise you for holding fast to these traditions. 
And many would say that the Corinthian church had a good understanding. They had a good theological ground on which to stand. They were good and solid theologically, but they acted poorly. They didn't live out their faith well. And I would say, well, that's kind of true. However, the two go hand in hand. You can't really do one well without the other. That if you have a good, solid understanding, that you will then live in light of that understanding. And you can't live in light of that understanding. You can't live appropriately if you don't have good understanding or good theological underpinnings. My wife told me, by the way, I have my wife read my sermons, and I, um, I, I like to just have her read through them, catch any grammatical errors, see if I'm just completely crazy. Uh, and she said, go slow on this one. You've got a lot of information. Go slow. And that's not in my nature oftentimes. So just, I'm going to try to calm down and go slow. So Paul is genuine when he's saying, I really do praise you. I praise you that when you assemble, you're concerned about these things. You're concerned about head coverings, celebrating the Lord's Supper, using spiritual gifts. But then in the chapters ahead, he corrects some misunderstandings about how and why these practices should be lived out. So he says, I praise you for doing this, but then what follows is, but you need to understand how these things are to be applied and why they are to be applied. You need to have a better understanding of why these practices exist. In other words, he wants them to have more than just orthopraxy, if you will, which means correct conduct, but also good orthodoxy which means correct belief or understanding. I want you to have both. And I pray the same thing for us today. And always. You know, here's the thing. This passage is about head coverings. So I could have just stood up here this morning and said, Women, you need to wear head coverings. Amen. Right? Or I could have said, Women, you don't need to wear head coverings. Let's start the fellowship luncheon early. But the point is, just as the Corinthian believers needed to have proper understanding of why Paul was saying what he was, the same is true for us today. That if we just walk away, and I know the tendency as we work through a text like this, the tendency the whole time is to be like, so do I or don't I? Or what do I do? And don't get to the what do I do before you understand what Paul is saying first. It's important to understand that first. So just as the Corinthian believers needed to have a proper understanding, so do we today too. So the goal in working through this text, the goal is not just to get right what is on our heads, but instead to get right what is in our heads. See how I did that? Isn't that cute? It's not just to get right what is on our heads, but instead to get right what is in our heads, to have appropriate thinking. So all of this is to say that I believe that when Paul speaks of women praying and prophesying in this text, he's speaking specifically to them doing so when the church is gathered for worship, and not necessarily outside of that context. Therefore, when we get to the actual application of head coverings, know that I will be speaking specifically to their use in corporate worship. That is not to say the principle cannot be applied elsewhere. It doesn't mean that You can't apply the same principle outside of the corporate worship service, but I believe that the text is speaking specifically to that context. That when the church gathers for worship, much like we are doing right now. So, all of that to say, without further ado, let's look at the first principle, the first 
or the first point in our sermon outline. Our sermon now what is a mini-series. Uh, number one, the principle. Number one, the principle. And like I said, this is the only point we will actually cover today because I think it's important to get the principle down before we talk about the problem, the priority, the proper perspective, and the proper practice. We need to understand the principle first, and then you'll have to come back next week. And yes, yes, I will indeed leave most of you hanging on some level. So look at verse 3 with me. Paul says, but I want you to understand, verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So having just said, I praise you for holding fast to the traditions you learned from me. I praise you for holding fast to these traditions. He now says, but, but I want you to know. In other words, he's saying, pay attention. This is important. I praise you for giving money to the offering, but I want you to know why you should give money to the offering. I praise you that you show up for church on Sunday morning, but I want you to know why you should show up for church on Sunday morning. I praise you for whatever you do, but I want you to know, whatever you do that seeks to honor God, but I want you to know why. I want you to know the underpinning, the principle behind that. Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. As our culture has fought hard against the teachings of the Bible. I think our culture has fought very hard against the clear teachings of the Bible. Many have sought to reinterpret what is meant by the word head in this verse. In recent years, many have tried to argue that this verse really doesn't refer to authority, but instead to source. That there's this idea that they claim that Paul is saying that the source of a woman is man because Adam... Uh, because Eve was taken from Adam's rib, and while the term head can be used in a number of ways in both uh, Greek and in English, that's not, I, I don't think, what Paul is saying here. I don't think he's referring to the source. So an example of that in English might be we refer to the head of a river, the source uh, of a river. But that's not what Paul means here. For God is not the source of Christ. He is not saying that Christ, that, that Christ was created from God. So the term head refers, I think, instead to authority. And I think there's other scriptures that make that application or that point clear. Much like we might say someone is the head of a department or uh, the head of a company or an organization because they've been given a position of authority. So in the same way, Paul is saying that man... Has been, has been assigned a place of authority, a place of headship over woman. Thus, we see this in other contexts. We see this term used in the same way when we see it used in reference to Christ in the following verses. Look at, uh, or listen to Ephesians 1.22. Ephesians 1.22 says this, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him, Jesus, this is, and gave Him as head over all things to the church. That he is the authority over and above the church. That this is not my church. This is not even your church. This is his church. I'll tell you, one of the things that upsets me a lot, this is just a complete rabbit trail, that just upsets me a lot is when somebody will say, oh, it's so nice that you have your own church. I just want to like, I want to gag whenever I hear that. I'm just serious. Like, that's, that's what I want to do is I want to throw up. 
Because A, this isn't my church, and B, and, and it annoys me equally as well, i got to tell you, when somebody says, well, this is my church. I've been here. Yeah, you know what? I get what you mean, but it's Christ's church. He is the one who has been given as head over all things. He is the one who has authority. He is the senior pastor of this church. Also, we see the same word used again in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 6, 14 and 15, I think in the same way. We are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head. We're to grow up into him, in Him who is the head. He's the authority. Now, I think the point that I'm trying to make, I hope the point that I'm trying to make is that Christ is the one who has authority. And that this word head, in this context, and oftentimes within Scripture, refers to authority. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to address the fact that the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, uses the terms man and woman here in 1 Corinthians 11. And most of your English translations will indeed use those terms, man and woman. Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of every woman. However, the ESV, if you're using the good old ESV, says something slightly different. It uses the terms husband and wife. This is not because there's a manuscript difference or because we're unsure what the original Greek word was when Paul wrote it in the manuscript. We know what the word was and the words, the words there can refer to either men and women or husbands and wives. So much like you might say, Bill Batty, take good care of your woman, right? That, the, the term woman can refer to a man's woman, and a man, the term man, can refer to a woman's man. That the idea is husbands and wives can be implied based on the context. So, the ESV uses the term husbands and wives. Others use the terms man and woman. However, before we even get to which one is appropriate, I want you to understand that not every woman is under the authority of every man. Young ladies are under the authority of their fathers. Wives are under the authority of their husbands. And within a congregation, women are under the authority of the church elders, who are to be men, as we'll see a little bit later, who, those men who rule the church. So it's not that every woman is under the authority of every man. You don't go to the grocery store and have some man, the guy at the, cash, at the cash register, you're not under his authority because you are a woman. That is not the point. However, I think the terms man and woman are most appropriate here because the idea of submission and authority does extend, just, it does extend beyond just marriage. That the root, the primary thing that we're going to naturally think, even as we work through this text, is marriage. We're going to be constantly thinking back to marriage, but it extends beyond marriage, and I think it extends to the local church in particular as well. So, I'm going to use man and woman instead of husband and wife, but know that both are true on some level. So, and many of you may be thinking this, as we talk about this idea of authority, and we talk about women 
under the authority of men. Many of you are thinking, okay, wait a minute, you lost me like a long time ago. What about Galatians 3.28? You're talking about all this authority stuff. Doesn't Galatians 3.28 say something about there's no longer male nor female? Wasn't all this done away with in the New Testament? And many would actually argue this case. And I think they would argue this case wrongly. Uh, let me read Galatians 3.27-28 for you. It says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The point of Galatians 3.28 is not that any and all distinctions between the sexes have been eliminated. The point is not that Christ came and eliminated every distinction between being a man and every distinction uh, uh, between being a, a, a female. The point is that everyone, regardless of race, sex, or social status, is reconciled to God in the same way. And some would say this. Some would say, well, no, what he really means is that God assigns people roles irregardless of race, sex, or social status. That, as I mentioned, that some would say that women can serve in ministry because of this verse. That regardless of their race, regardless of their sex, regardless of their social status, they can do anything and should do anything a man can do. And that men can do anything that a woman can do. It's not what he's saying. The point is that we're reconciled to God in the same way. Not that those things are done away with. Slaves still existed. Free men still existed. You didn't suddenly no longer become a Greek. Those things still existed and those distinctions were established. But they were reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ's work on the cross. And the same is true today of men and women the same is true of regardless of race or social status. As many have said, the, the level, the ground at the foot of the cross is even. We all come desperate in need of grace. God's grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. And we're all saved by the same blood, the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Now I realize, I realize that this teaching goes against the grain, as I mentioned, of our culture. This is not at all what our culture would say. In fact, I even read a, a pastor speaking about how he was in seminary and he remembers writing a paper about how if we're going to reach people with the gospel, we must get rid of this nonsense about men and women are created differently with different roles and distinction of role. And we must, we must say no, that all that's been done away with in Christ, that instead there's no distinction of role. And I thought... Well, that may sound kind of pragmatic, but it's not true. It's not based on Scripture. Just because you think that that's going to stand in the way of the Gospel, I assure you it will not. That what stands in the way of the Gospel is departing from truth. That stands in the way of the Gospel. Instead, we need to look at what Scripture says. And by the way, this idea of this tension, this going against the grain of our culture, and our culture not liking this kind of teaching, it's predicted in Genesis. That it's not something that we are like, wow, this, is, this completely caught God offhand, that people don't like this idea. Genesis 3.16, God, after the fall of man and woman, is speaking to the woman, and He says to the woman, He said, 
the end of 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This desire is not sexual desire. It's not desire uh, in some way that she wants to uh, be uh, after her husband or have her husband. It's that she wants to be like her husband. And that the, the whole idea there is that he's going he's gonna to have authority over you and you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it at all. And you know what? The same is true as we move forward. We're going to see the responsibilities of men and men aren't going to like the responsibilities. The men are going to be lazy. They're going to be like, oh, I don't want to do that. And they're just going to want to roll. Even this past week, as conflict arose in my home, there are times when I just wanted to roll over and play dead. It's just easier. Just let me just roll over. I'll just play dead. Whatever. It's okay. Just do it. Whatever, whatever it is, just leave me alone. That there's this tension that exists. That I want her role, and she wants my role. And we do this. That's what happens. Because of the fall, because of the curse of sin. But it is not intended to be that way. So this teaching goes against the grain of our culture because our culture is of the world. And many would say that this kind of teaching is just male chauvinism. In fact, I was studying a video, I was studying this week and I came across a video of a woman preacher who actually said that this kind of teaching, this idea that I like that many call complementarianism, no, it's a big word, complementarianism, and it, it means to complement one another, not compliment, not like, boy, honey, that shirt looks good on you today, but compliment in that you come together and that you, you complement each other. Like, like milk complements Oreos, or Oreos complement milk, right? Unlike orange juice and toothpaste, which don't really complement each other, right? The, this idea of complementarianism, this woman said, this preacher said, that this is how churches become cultic. She said, this is how churches, that's the foundation of cults. Because she has a misunderstanding of what complementarianism is. The issue is not one of inferiority. The issue is not that women are less than men, but instead that they are different than men. And our culture has tried to do away with these things, and we're suffering the consequences of that even now. You turn on the news. And uh, Julia will be registering for the draft before long. My girls will be registering for the draft before long. Because we've said, well, there's no difference. They're exactly the same. There's no distinction of roles. And now the world's completely confused. Because many who were on the liberal side of things are going, we can't let that happen. And many who are on the conservative side of things are going, amen, yeah, let's, let's see how this plays out. You want no distinction of roles? And instead, what we should step back and go and say is sad is say, there is distinction. There is distinction. Open your eyes. As Paul says later, does not even nature speak to the fact that there's distinction? Like, just look. And as a society has taken and sought to, to change these distinctions, to eliminate these distinctions, we see more and more chaos. It's not cultic. In fact, Cults start when people depart from the truth of Scripture. So the point is, do not hear me say that men are superior to women. That is not what the Scripture teaches. That is male chauvinism. However, do not hear me say that women are just like men either, or that men are just like 
women. Women are equal in value, but have different roles to play within the family and within Christ's church. One needs not look any further than the immediate context to understand this concept. Consider what Paul says about God being the head of Christ. He does not mean that Christ is somehow inferior to the Father, but that they each have distinct roles and that Christ willingly submits to his heavenly Father. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 28, he said, I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Hebrews 10, 7, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. You ladies out there are probably thinking, well, that's one thing. Jesus submits to God the Father, the Holy and Righteous One. But look at what you're telling me I'm supposed to submit to, right? This thing next to me is what I'm supposed to submit to? Or even you may be thinking, ah, you mentioned the church, and that means you, and you're telling me to submit to you? However, I want you to hold fast and understand that we would be doing a serious injustice to the teaching of Scripture if we focused only on the submission to authority on the part of women without also focusing on the serious responsibility on the part of men to lead in a way that is God-honoring. So men, you're not getting off the hook on this one. Not at all. Look at Ephesians 5 with me. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 21. You know, every time I read this, this text, I am cut to the quick. And I pray that you are as well. Ephesians 5, 21 through 30. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. And husbands go, Amen! That's right, you preach it. And then they get to 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, might, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and died for her, gave himself up for her. Colossians 3.19 makes it clear. Don't be harsh. This is not, we don't say, wives, you're called to be subject to your husbands. Instead, that's not harshness to say that. Because the flip side of that is, husbands, lay down your life. Love your wives. Sacrifice. Give care for, pour into her. And I assure you that when a man lives that way, that a wife will willingly and lovingly submit. That no woman says, no, no, uh, not that. No, I'm not submitting to a man who lays down everything for me and loves me above all else and cares for me in that way. Who loves me above everything except for Jesus. One who's willing to live for me, one who's willing to die for me. That when that happens, a woman says, this is what I've been longing for. I may not have even realized, but this is exactly what, the way it's meant to be. 
So men, you're not off the hook in your marriages. Consider also what Scripture says about men who are called to lead in God's church. And by the way, the qualifications for elders, I remember asking Mark Coons, I said, uh, we really want you to pray about becoming a deacon. I want you to pray about, I want you to look over the qualifications. And his point was, I've always sought, not in a prideful way, I've always sought to live in, within those qualifications. Those are qualifications of the godly men. It's not like, well, one day I want to be a deacon, so I'm going to live up to these qualifications. Instead, it's no, you find men who are doing this because it's what they're supposed to do, and then you put them in this position of leadership, of authority. So men, this applies to all of you. 1 Timothy 3, 2-7. We have so far to go. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2-7. through seven. An overseer must then be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert. In verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. And the scripture goes on. So, the point is, above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, managing well, good reputation. Why? Why such qualifications? Because God wants leaders, elders to lead well. And Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that leaders in the church are those who keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That is serious stuff. That is serious stuff. That one day I will give an account and I'll stand before God and God will say, what about Irene? What about Lucy? What about Mark? What about T? I believe that to be the case. That's what Hebrews 13 says. So in light of that, be above reproach. Temperate, prudent, the husband of one wife, not addicted to wine. Be serious about living for God. Don't go home and say, wives, the pastor said submit. Instead, go home and say, look in the mirror and say, above reproach. The husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Am I doing these things? Am I doing these things? And the natural result of doing these things in the church and in the home is you have people who want to follow, who want to submit. By the way, the foundation for male headship within the church comes not from me, but directly from God's Word. In order to understand this, we need to know what Scripture says about those who are called to serve as overseers or elders in the church. There are three terms used to refer to the same office in Scripture. Bishop, elder, and pastor. And I won't get into that. I have stuff written here, but there's these three terms. They're bishop, elder, and pastor. Bishop is one who exercises oversight, focuses on the oversight. Elder is one who speaks... Uh, the, the term is used to speak primarily to their work, or to their qualification, excuse me. And then pastor speaks primarily to their work of leading through teaching. So, bishop, elder, pastor. So in 1 Timothy, as we just read, it says that the elder, the pastor, must be the husband of one wife. Thus testifying to the fact that overseers are to be men. They're to be male. Furthermore, we know this from 1 Timothy 2, verses 9-13. through 13. He writes this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must, must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach 
or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That is why we do not have female pastors here at Harmony Bible Church. Not because we're sexist. Not because we think women are inferior. In fact, if you know my wife, you know that on many levels she is far superior to me. And, and in fact, when you think of the, the idea of shepherding, pastoring, my wife has a shepherd's heart. My wife has been given the gift of shepherding. She has that, I think, that gift. That doesn't mean she's called to serve in that capacity in the church as the teaching elder. Why? Because the Bible clearly teaches that there are to be distinctions of roles within the family and the church. And God says in his word that the office of elder, those who are called to lead the church through the primary ministry of preaching and teaching are to be men. And I don't believe that means that, that women can't ever speak or that they can't ever pray. But instead, that this office, that the office of elder is reserved specifically for males. And this, by the way, is not a cultural truth, as many commentators would say. They would say, well, that was written in 1 Corinthians. You know, come on, it's been like 2,000 years. Why? Because what does Paul appeal to here? He appeals to the created order. He says, from the beginning, God has made it this way. And Genesis 1.31 tells us, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Gender roles are a gift from God. They are. And to deny the differences that exist between men and women is the worst form of sexism. And I don't mean the typical stereotypical cultural things that we lay on men and women. I'm talking about real gender differences. I'm not talking about men can't like to go shoe shopping. Men should love to go shoe shopping. I love shoe shopping. I'm not talking about women can't enjoy driving a pickup truck. There are things that our, culture, that our culture deems as inappropriate or appropriate. I'm talking about biblical differences between men and women and roles within the family and the church. You see, it's not honoring to women to say that they're the same as men. It's not. In fact, it's dishonoring. Nor is it honoring to say that men are the same as women. It's dishonoring to both sexes. So, women are called to submit to male headship within the home and the church. But as I've said, men, you're not off the hook because you're called to lead like Christ. You're called to love like Christ. Why? Because you are called to submit to your head. That is Christ. So Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11.3 is, is that both men and women are under authority. And the point in Ephesians 5, the text we read earlier about husbands and wives, is that marriage is designed to mirror Christ's relationship with the church. Marriage should point to Christ's relationship with his bride, his love for his bride. So submission in marriage is meant to paint a picture, much like communion paints a picture, and baptism paints a picture of what Christ did for us. So also a marriage lived out with Godly leadership and godly submission paints a picture of the church submitting to Christ. I should be able to look at, I'll pick on Bill again, I should be able to look at Bill and Sue and say, wow, as she submits to his leadership and he leads well, that's a picture of what the church should be doing with Jesus. That we are his bride. And we should be willingly submitting to him who always, always leads well. And in the same way, 
submission to headship, I believe, is to be reflected in our worship service together. That as we worship, there should be this idea of headship that is reflected. And that that too should paint a picture of our submission to Christ. Should serve as a reminder of our submission to Him. Much like communion serves as a reminder, much like baptism serves as a reminder. So submission to, submission to headship is to be reflected in our worship. So having seen the first point in our sermon outline, the principle, uh, that men and women are equally valuable to God, but they're called to honor God in different roles, within the family and within the church. And there's debates about culture. We're not talking about can women serve as president. That's another topic. It's, yeah, especially now. It's a whole other topic, right? We're talking about gender differences within the family and the church. And by implication, as we move forward, submission to headship and the way that's reflected in our gathered worship. So the principle is that men and women are equally valuable but called to honor God in differing roles within the family and the church. And next week, as we continue through verses 4 through 16, we'll consider not only the principle but the problem, the priority, the proper perspective, and then the proper practice. So you sat through a whole sermon and you didn't get the answer. Do I come next week? Do I, what do I do, right? Stay tuned and hopefully we can work through the text and figure out what is the proper practice. But we need to understand the problem, the priority, the proper perspective. We need to understand these things before we begin to just make changes about how we uh, do things in this context or in any context. So in the meantime, the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, specifically here at Harmony Bible Church? Well, number one, realize that God made males and females to be complementary. Not only did he make us different, he made us to go together. I remember having a conversation with my kids about the male end of an electrical cord and the female end of an outlet. Or an electrical cord, right? They're made to go together on many levels physical level, the spiritual level, the emotional level, men and women are made to go together. They are complementary. And when men and women work together in biblical leadership and submission, the result is beautiful. The result is that you end up with a unit, a whole, that is greater than the two halves. That when they come together, something amazing happens. It's like a, a reaction where the, the, the new thing is better than the two halves ever were by themselves. So we need to realize that God made males and females to be complementary. Number two, we need to live out our God-ordained roles in submission to God and seek to bring Him glory. Don't worry. Don't try to be what you are not, but instead, lead well if you're a man and follow well if you're a woman. And especially in our culture where all this stuff is just blended and changed. And Instead, we should say, no, this is how we bring glory to God. This is one of the ways we point to what Christ did for us. That as you live this out, you are indeed preaching the gospel. You're, you're, not, you're no longer standing in the way of the gospel, but instead furthering the gospel. And number three, let our marriages and the way we conduct ourselves in worship paint the beautiful picture of the gospel. Let our marriages paint that picture. May our leadership and submission point to the greater reality of our submission to Him as His bride. See, we need to realize what's at stake here. This is not a secondary issue. This is a gospel issue. And I'm talking about verse 3. This is a gospel issue. 
Now, the, we can debate whether the head coverings thing is a secondary issue, and we'll get there next week. But verse 3 is not a secondary issue in any way, shape, or form. It's a gospel issue. So when we meet, we must do nothing to stand in the way of the gospel. We must not live in rebellion to the roles and functions that God has ordained for us. And we must do everything to further the gospel, including painting a picture, being diligent to paint a picture of the church's submission to Christ. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray that you'd be with us. God, this kind of teaching runs so contrary to what we learn as kids in our culture, to what we see played out on the evening news. It runs contrary to our sinful nature. Men who don't want to lead and women who don't want to follow. God, forgive the men, me included, for not always leading in a way that causes the women to want to follow. God, forgive the women for undermining and and subverting that authority that you have given to men. Give us wisdom, Lord, as we seek to live out these uh, verses, this principle. Help us to get the principle right, to get what is in our heads right before we begin to think about the application of what is on our heads. God, I thank you for your grace. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.